Welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast, where business leaders tell their stories and share their insights. All our guests have a personal connection with Nottingham Business School. So listen, learn, enjoy and share. Robin Fole was a senior executive at two of Britain's biggest banks, Santander and Barclays. He witnessed firsthand the financial crash of the late 2000s and was then part of the recovery during the following years as banks had to work hard to regain trust. He is now semi-retired with a portfolio of advisory roles, including chair of the Nottingham Business School Advisory Board. He's also a non-executive director of the Reliance Bank, which has a particular commitment to customer care and ethical banking. Robin, thank you for joining the Business Leaders Podcast. Not at all. It's my pleasure. Nice to be here. As I said, you were a senior executive in uh, two of Britain's biggest banks during what was a tumultuous, controversial period for the industry. How do you reflect on that uh, now? It's a very interesting question, really, because I, as you say, semi-retired three or four years or so ago now. And so... My reflections on them are somewhat more balanced, perhaps, than they would have been immediately at the time. I changed banks in 2007, 2008. So actually, I changed right in the peak of the crisis. So I went from Barclays to uh, Santander and had a period of time off in between the two. And I think my reflections on them were that they were very challenging times, uh, which is sort of seems the most underestimated statement in the world, but they were hugely challenging. And yet I was able to contrast two huge organisations in those reflections. And I think my major reflection on the time was that when organisations stick to what they're good at and what they know, they are far more resilient than we give them credit for. In particular, when I joined Santander, Santander's ethos and culture is and certainly was at the time to stay very true to its principles of being a retail bank. And it articulated that it took deposits and it lent them out. And that's pretty much 95% of what it did. And it did it very well. It was very prudent with its risk and it was very sensible in looking after its people. And my reflections are that as a result of that contrast, and by the way, there's no implied criticism of Barclays being the opposite, far, far from it, actually. I was just able to see it more starkly in my induction into something there. It's very much a people industry and that therefore if if you look after your people and by your people, I mean your customers as well, and you do so in the right way, despite good times or bad, then actually your resilience and your ability to survive that as an individual, as a leader, as a customer is that much more strong as a result of it, I think. They were certainly very tough times, very challenging times. As with all these things, there were many opportunities during it, um, but I also saw some really sad situations of businesses that were literally forced to go under at the time. So as you can probably tell from the answer, very mixed feelings, very, very mixed reflections. But as I say, in in terms of my leadership challenge in looking after it, uh, I needed to stay consistent and true. Uh, and in particular, in starting with something there, immerse myself in truly understanding what was going on at the time and make no assumptions. Did you have any overarching learning from it you know in, in business terms you've talked about leadership you've talked about the banks you've talked about people but was there was there an, a wider learning for you yes there was and it actually stands true in the current crisis that we find ourselves immersed within and it's one of being utterly open honest and transparent in dealings be that 
the business's dealings with the bank or the bank's dealing with the business. And I think where there is trust, honesty and an open relationship between the bank and a business, then that can weather most storms, be they bad storms or positive storms. And I think we've got a classic example at the moment of individual businesses that are struggling to raise some of the finances that are available to them because perhaps they haven't put all of their banking through the bank or they don't have the relationship with the bank or they've tried to move to a new bank at a vulnerable period in, in their evolution. And they found it that much harder to secure the finance, whereas those businesses that have a long-term relationship with their bank, that have done their banking through them, secured finance and support finance literally in a matter of minutes. Isn't one of the constant refrains from, certainly through the media I see this, isn't one of the constant refrains from smaller business that they struggle to establish that kind of relationship now with banks? Relationship can also be identified, I think, these days via data, and therefore your usage of your bank account establishes your relationship with that bank. So if you use the bank account, if you pay in and you draw out, you pay on time, you use the bank for all of your finances. And when I say the bank, I mean you put all of your banking through one, two or three banks. Then actually, I think you establish a relationship by virtue of fact and objectivity of what you've done with the bank, not just the vulnerability of my bank manager has left after looking after me for 10 years. Well, actually, all your bank manager knew was what you did with your bank. So if you continue to do that in the world of data in which we live now, actually that data will speak for itself. And of course, that data is portable between banks now. Is that a question of integrity? I know you, you lecture on leadership and integrity now. Is that is that part of the same thing, that transparency yeah. issue? Absolutely right. I mean, integrity, uh, I'd like to think, runs through me and my core. It's uh, something that was instilled in me very young from my father, who was um, a chartered accountant and set up his own business. So that sort of entrepreneurialism and that understanding of business comes from him. And I think you're absolutely right that actually no one ever said integrity was easy. Far from it, actually. It's about doing the right thing at the right time. And, and often that's not necessarily the easy thing at the easy time. I've been very loyal to many of the organisations to whom I, I've been employed and but also my bank account and my finances. I've had the same financial advisor for, for 20 years. I trust him implicitly and wouldn't entertain the thought of ever moving my investments away. And actually, we have a conversation each year about increasing the fee I pay to him, not reducing the fee that I pay to him. I want to increase the fee. So, so, so given the period in which you've been working within the industry and given the conversation that we're having about the importance of, of integrity, did you ever feel conflicted as a bank executive? Was there a difference between what you were asked to do and, and what you thought was right? The honest answer has to be yes. And that there have been some times when I've conflicted, when, when I have felt conflicted. And if I'm candid, I left one organisation as a result of that. I think it's very important to oneself. I think when you when you have integrity, particularly as a leader, you know it and your team know it. I think what's even more profound, though, is when you lose that integrity, you know you've lost it. Your team know you've lost it. And the most important thing is you never get it back. It's gone. I've always stood for doing the right thing, and I've always been very resolute in my desire to continue to do that. And there have been a number of examples where 
I've stood up in in conferences or in presentations or in even one to ones where that integrity certainly has been uh, at risk, but I've refused to compromise it. But what I also think is the, the opposite is true, that when you are spoken of as a leader, when you're not in the room, if you have a reputation for strong integrity, then the conversations that are spoken of you, and I can think of one example of, of an individual for whom I've worked for, his, for whom his integrity is utterly unquestioned. You only ever heard positive thoughts and inspirations of the leadership that he gave. There was never any question on it. And therefore you have an influence over people when you're not even leading them directly. And I think that can be um, very underestimated. So integrity, I think um, I, I, in leadership, I talk about four things of leadership. Maybe we can talk about them later, but the number one is integrity. Moving on to that leadership, um, does leadership, business leadership in particular, um, give you a thrill? Oh yeah. Yeah, I think, um, well, you can tell, I mean, the immediacy, the immediacy of the answer. Yeah, I love it. My first leadership job was leading two business bankers in Barnstable Branch in North Devon. Now, Barnstable's a wonderful place, but it certainly isn't the centre of commercial excellence for the UK. But my success was to be determined by the performance of others. And that was a very strong realisation that there are many people with whom I've worked where they want to control their own destiny, their own performance and their own criteria and do what they do, but do it themselves and on their own. I think leaders realise that their success, be it individual or the collective success, is in the hands of so many others. And that dawn of realisation was really exciting and challenging for me because implied within that is therefore your desire and need to have the very best team you can possibly have. And the thrill of recruitment of a team, of the dynamism of the team recruiting to a future agenda. I've, I've been greatly privileged in my career to have had a huge number of opportunities. And yet the undercurrent for all of them was recruiting the right team. And I've, I found that hugely exciting. But also when one inherits a team that isn't perhaps as strong as, as you'd like, that realisation soon hits you. So I, I, I won't, I could talk about it forever, but it's demanding, it's exciting, it can change your life. It's pretty scary sometimes. Uh, it's fun, it's rewarding, and there's nothing quite like seeing those that you've had the privilege to lead going on to bigger, better things and ultimately becoming, you know, your boss. So that's the thrill. That's the that's the the the, the, the positive side of, of what you've done. Are there are there negatives? Are there things that you wish you had known before you walked into it? Are there things that you can, tomorrow's big managers, tomorrow's entrepreneurs, can you tell them things that they won't see written down, which are definitely going to hit them and, uh, and which they're not going to enjoy so much? I think the first thing that hits me is is it can be incredibly lonely. By, by default, you can't really confide in your team. Depending on the nature of the industry, you can't confide in your peers and you certainly wouldn't want to in my industry necessarily confide in your competitors. So it can be hugely uh, lonely, but I think um, that there are ways around that. And I think counsel I would give to anybody is to seek out either a coach or a mentor. And I'm very clear that there's a profound difference between the two. But I think find that person in, in whom you can confide, that you can share confidences and who will have a vested interest in in helping you to be better. You talk there about self-belief and I seem to remember you telling me that you were intrigued by the number of, of young entrepreneurs who were starting their businesses very, very early, perhaps during or, or even before their university yeah. studies finished. How, what, do you, what do you put that down to? 
if we're intrigued, I would also add inspired. I um, More latterly, I spent some time working and leading the Santander Universities Division, so I had a relationship with 80 universities across the UK. And I spent a lot of time, lot of time each week in and around each of those universities and quite often in and around the business schools. And um, I think this is certainly true of Nottingham as well. The number of young people who aspire to work for themselves, who want to work, who have a very strong work ethic. Why do you think that is? I think I, I, it's difficult to say in simple terms. I think there's a myriad of reasons why. I think some have come from that background. I think some don't want to necessarily work for a big organisation. Others will believe that there are far fewer opportunities to work for larger organisations. And equally, I think the support that further education and higher education, because I see this in schools now, I see local enterprise partnerships working with schools to nurture enterprise, but also universities doing so. You know, there are innovation hubs, there are incubators, there are universities that are investing in these young people. I think they also have great ideas. The, the advent of much more breadth of technology. I think the universities and schools are encouraging this thinking. But I also see young people with a very strong and robust idea and who have the, the, the self-belief, as we started to talk about, to stick with it, but to seek help, to seek advice, to seek support. And they're getting it. You know, universities are investing physical cash in some of these businesses because they see the prosperity and the success of it coming. Do you think there's another reason for it? Do you think that business organisations with a social conscience, is it increasingly a better place to start your career too? Yes. No question. <laughs> no question. I, and I, and I, I say so because I've seen the sort of enormous weight behind social enterprise and the social enterprise movement really gather pace and gather weight. Consumer expectation is changing and has changed. Let me give you an example. I, I met an inspirational lady. This was a few years ago now. She upcycled fire hoses into luxury goods such as handbags, purses, suitcases. Yes, I I've read about that. It's a fantastic business. It is. And I met this lady, and 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 forgive me, I I, I can't remember her name as I sit here now because it was a number of years ago. But what she does is that she gives fifty percent of her profits back to the firemen's charities, and she's now the single largest donor to fire charities in the UK as a result of the prosperity of her business. She's probably as obsessed with the creation of profit as anybody I've ever seen, but how she does it. And what she does it is what defines her as a social entrepreneur. And I think often these things need to be brought to life with an example. And, and she and her story, as with so many others, will stick with me that there are different ways to be done. And, and social enterprise doesn't mean necessarily not for profit, although there is a segment that is not for profit. But many social entrepreneurs that I've met are as obsessed with profit as, as any other I've seen. But what they define themselves by is the way they choose to do it. And I also think consumer expectation has changed. We want to know the provenance, for example, of the food chain where we're buying our food. I was very privileged to be asked to join the board of the Salvation Army International Trust, and they are the sole owner of the Reliance Bank, which was which was founded over 100 years or so ago as part of the Salvation Army movement. Now, firstly, I have to say the work of the Salvation Army has humbled me to my core and has inspired me more than perhaps I've ever been inspired before. Their impact around the UK and around the world is huge. And the reason they set up the bank in the first place was to enable the majority of society to be able to access finance. 
and also to enable the flow of funds between the different territories. Those principles hold good in the Alliance today and the work that I've been able to contribute in a small way as a non-exec is to ensure that the lending that they do has social impact, that the customers that they bank have social purpose and that they're also able to stick to the ethical values that have hold good, held good rather over so many years. I won't say it's easy, you know, it's a team of 40 that used to be a team of sort of 22, 23 people. They're as heavily regulated as the Barclays and the Santander's of the world. Yet their desire and their true north of what they want to do, I think has had a profound impact on so many of its customers and certainly me in the two years or so that I've been on the board. So that, that embellishes my very simple word to answer to your question, which was yes, it has an enormous impact. Is that the future of the banking industry too? I think it's part of it. Banking has changed. I mean, banking's changed. I joined Barclays in 1985. The world has changed since 1985. I saw so many changes myself over that period of time. I think we've touched on this. It'll be more transactional than relationship, uh, but I don't necessarily think we should fear that. I think if 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 we don't fear the data, then that transactional relationship will become similar. So it's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. There will be fewer branches, we're seeing that already. And the harsh reality is that when one looks at the data, and I appreciate that there's a lot of underlying root causes to the data, customers are using branches far, far less than we and they ever used to. I appreciate that there are demographics in that number that still need access to branches. So I think for a period of time, there will always be a hard core of branches in and around the major conurbations. But the harsh reality is that branches on high streets need to be as viable as the fruit and veg shop on the high street, as the butcher on the high street. And, and when they're not, tough decisions need to be made. So do you think but it'll all go online? I don't think it will all go online. I don't think it can all go online. But I think over a period of time, as digital usage increases, and let's be honest, over the last 12 months, we've seen digital uses become exponentially higher by virtue of lack of choice, I think there will always be the need to physically see someone or to go in and to sign or to do whatever we need to do, but in a completely different way. But I think we'll see branch spaces look and feel differently. And maybe we'll see a tie up with social enterprise. Maybe we'll see them used as showcases. Maybe a, a, a customer can have premises in the, in the branch for three months rent free to trial a product. I think we will see the banks use their branches in a different way. I don't think we'll see wholesale sales of them. So I think it will be digital and face-to-face. -face. If I may, there's there's one point I would like to make here just quickly. And this is about us being in control of our own destiny and our own choices. I talk a lot in my leadership lectures about choice and sacrifice. And I think one thing that, that will become missing if we're not careful that the banks do their best to fill a gap on is financial education at school. There is so little, and I'm I'm very conscious that that's a very sweeping statement, but it is experiential in its deduction that there isn't enough financial education in school, such that the principle of earning more than you spend isn't isn't well enough understood. It's I can get a credit card so I can spend what I like, and so general though I may be, I think as long as in banks, banks not necessarily being as prevalent in our societies, as long as we can continue the work that they do, I think that will help hugely. But this is about choice and sacrifice. And I think we need to recognise that in the choices that we make of not going onto our high streets, the sacrifices will lose our branches. Uh, and to use an example, I, I speak to my dad 
as you would expect, still an awful lot. He's <clears throat> he's only an hour or so away from me now. He comes from a background of uh, an accountancy, as I said earlier on. So his world is black and white. There is very little grey in the middle of it. And I remember some time ago, he sort of said to me, you banks, you banks, you know, you're shutting all these branches. And I said to him, so tell me, Dad, where do you bank? He said, Lloyd's. So where's your bank? He said, Mutley Plain on Plymouth. I said, when was the last time you went into Lloyd's on Mutley Plain in Plymouth? He went, about seven years ago. So I said, so who's closing the branches? Banking was often viewed as potentially lucrative, but perhaps slightly dour. You've, you've painted quite an exciting picture there, if you don't mind me saying so. Is, it, is, that, is, is, that, is that the future? Is it going to be a, a more exciting, uh, a better option in the future? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think I think I I think it's been huge and varied in its options. I've seen probably twenty different styles of business under the banner of banking. If you think about it, uh, there's there's international trade, there's retail, there's corporate, there's risk management, there's compliance, there's marketing, there's human resources, there's operations. There's the money markets, there are leadership opportunities. So there's 10 or 11 there just off the top of my head. And the skills that are required in each of those are huge and and varied. And so I think I've probably worked for six different organisations whilst under the general banner of banking. So given your time again, you'd do exactly the same thing? Not necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I would. It's funny, I, when I joined Barclays in 85, I remember saying to my my parents, I'll do this for a couple of years and then I'll decide what I really want to do. And, and 22 years later, I left Barclays. It was quite quite frightening. But but I'm very proud of those days and I'm very, very proud of, of hopefully what I achieved in the limited way that I could do so. Having seen entrepreneurialism and experienced entrepreneurialism a little bit more myself, I think I would have had I known then what I know now, backed myself a lot earlier and gone self-employed and been an entrepreneur. I like the idea of risking everything one has in backing oneself as a business. And and actually, that's in all the entrepreneurs I've ever met, and there must be thousands of them now, the one common denominator in all of them is that at some point they've gambled everything they have. And I think that was, that's what defines self-employment is that you go to the point where and some of them may have gambled nothing because they had nothing others will have gambled everything they have but it is a common facet and i've done that a couple of times in my career and i think with hindsight i would have done that but that's not to say in any way that i wish i hadn't joined banking i I, i've loved it because i've had the great privilege to lead and, and and work with thousands and thousands of people in a world that i wouldn't have understood otherwise so, finally, if you were to give one piece of advice to uh, to an entrepreneur just starting on his or her career or, or, a, or a more traditional business person working in a bigger organisation, what might that be? I'm going to ignore the brief and I'm going to give you two. I would implore everybody to understand that for every choice, there's a sacrifice and for every sacrifice, there's a choice. And it's balancing off that. So, for example, one individual may say, I want to earn half a million pounds. Well, the sacrifice is that if you're sat in Barnstable, you're probably unlikely to be able to do that. So your sacrifice is you will have to move house, you will have to chase the career, and you will have to make a number of sacrifices for your work-life balance to achieve your choice. And the other one is recruit brilliantly. Recruit and, and accept the fact that if you can build a team of people around you who what they do are better than you, you'll have the best board or the best business you'll have ever seen. Because as hard as it is to get people in, it's 10 times harder to get them out. 
So get the right people around you and you will flourish. Robin Fall, thank you very, very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, why not check out some of the other speakers in the series, which will include the sportswear marketing guru, Charlotte Cox, the rally CEO, Lee Kidger, and the head of Nottingham Castle, Sarah Blair Manning. The Nottingham Business School Business Leaders podcast is produced for Nottingham Trent University by Celtic Tiger Productions. Your presenter was honorary visiting professor Mike Sassy, and your producer was John Collins.